Choir musicians, we thank you for your ministry to us. We realize that you pray, that you work, you prepare, and then you come into the sanctuary here and lead us in worship. And we are grateful for your ministry, each and every one of you. We know you counted a ministry too, and we thank God for it. To all of our musicians, thank you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we open the Word of God. It is the only inerrant book known to mankind. And we have God the Holy Spirit as the only infallible teacher. And we pray that he might claim our attention, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts. And then as we leave this place, that he might empower us to live in the light of your precious truth. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For a person to reflect on his or her life and say, this is real living, what are the necessary ingredients? What should be present if someone says, this is real living? The first answer that many people would give is money. Real living requires money. One elderly woman said, from birth to 18, a girl needs good parents. From 18 to 35, she needs good looks. From 35 to 55, she needs a good personality. And from 55 on, she needs hard cash. So if you really want to live, you have to have money. Is that true? Is having money equated with real living? Others would say to know anything at all about real living, you must be young. And there has never been a more youth-oriented culture and society than ours today. We are told we must think young. We must act young, and we must look young. And the impression is that if you don't have youth, you just don't have anything. Is that true? Does youth guarantee real living? Still others would say, no, it's not money, it's not youth, it's education. To really live, we must be well-educated. But we know well-educated people who are miserable, don't we? So if real living isn't money, if it isn't youth, and if it isn't education, what is it? What is it? I suppose a myriad of answers could be adduced to that question. From the pages of 1 Thessalonians and from the pen of the Apostle Paul, I want us to see what he described as real living. Those are his words. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. After leaving Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul was so concerned about the spiritual children 
his spiritual children in that city, that life for him grew to a point where he couldn't bear to wait any longer to get word about his spiritual children. Paul was uncertain as to how they were doing. They were under pressure. They were facing opposition. And he was anxious over them. He had to have some word with respect to their faith. So Paul sent Timothy. First Timothy, excuse me, Titus. I'll get here in a minute. First Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 2. His method of getting word about the Thessalonians was to send Timothy. Verse 2 says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He was, of course, sending Timothy to find out about their faith as well. And when Timothy returned with the good news that the saints there were steadfast in their faith, they were strong in their love. Paul wrote verses 7 and 8 of this third chapter. Notice them with me, please. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we, notice the next two words, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. I think when Timothy got back and gave his report to the apostle, <clears throat> Paul took a deep breath and relaxed and said, this is real living. He felt that he had a new lease on life. Paul is saying that the success of the gospel in Thessalonica and the steadfastness of their faith and the strength of their love made his life worthwhile. But he doesn't stop there. There's some other things that I believe the apostle considered part of real living, how the Thessalonians were doing, but there were four other things, and he picks those up in verse 9 and following. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. Paul puts this in the form of a question. Now, what thanks? But it's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for answers. He isn't uh, fishing for information. The underlying thrust of these words is the feeling that he is unable to adequately give thanks to God for the joy that is his based on this report of the Thessalonian Christians. Have you ever experienced a time when joy reverberated through your soul and maybe you were overcome with gratitude and you bowed your head and, and began to pray and to thank God for whatever the particular thing was that had prompted this great joy in your heart, only to find that joyful gratitude was beyond expression. You didn't have the words. 
to express the gratitude that you felt. You know, often you've heard people speak of the difference between joy and happiness. Our joy is in the Lord. Happiness comes from the word hap, which means chance or circumstance. And all that's well and good, but I'd like to raise a couple of questions if I could. First of all, can a Christian whose joy is in the Lord live and never express that gratitude, that joy? Second, as Christian people, might we not call the outward expression of our joy, might we not call that happiness? My point is that obviously Paul's joy was in the Lord. But more than that, I think had we been present when Timothy came back and brought that report from Thessalonica, I think there was an outward expression from the Apostle Paul that we might have called happiness. I think we would have said of Paul on that day when he received that report from Timothy, there's a happy man. And Paul said, we really live if you stand fast, stand firm. One of the reasons I have always had a special place in my heart for children in the church is that most of the time they are happy. It's impossible to be around them and not feel a little bit better. Wouldn't it be good if mature, adult Christians could be a bit more childlike in this respect? An old, old TV personality. Has to be somebody from my generation you wouldn't remember. Maybe you've read a book about it. Art Linkletter? Art Linkletter once asked a three-year-old girl, how do you help your mother? Very quickly, she said, I help my mother cook breakfast. What do you do to help your mother cook breakfast? I put the toast in the toaster, but she won't let me flush it. <laughs> Linkletter once asked a grammar school boy what his father did for a living. The boy quickly replied, my dad's a cop. He catches crooks and burgers and spread eagles them and puts handcuffs on them and takes them to the station and puts them in the jail. Wow, Winkletter said. I bet your mom worries about his occupation, doesn't she? Heck no, the kid said. He brings her lots of watches, rings, and jewelry. (laughs) (coughs) You know, folks, um, stay with me on this. I think life has gotten too grim for a lot of us. We haven't always been that way. We didn't grow up that way. We didn't grow up with a little black cloud right here over our heads all the time. We didn't grow up that way. But we've gotten to be that way, at least some of us, haven't we? Now, I know that there's probably someone seated within the sound of my voice who's saying, that sounds pretty shallow. Preacher, don't you know that Life is serious. Yes, I know that. But here's something else that I know. 
the best, the most magnetic witness for Christ today is a person with a contagious, externally expressed joy of the Lord. There's a believability about their faith. There's a winsomeness about their faith. I think there's a freshness about it also. A person who can, uh, who can be on top of the circumstances and expressing the joy of the Lord that they have because they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't mean that every day should be full of silly grins and giggles. That's superficial, and that's not real joy. Rather, to express a deep sense of God is in me. God is on the throne. God is moving me in His direction. And one day He's coming for me. That, Paul said, joyful gratitude, that was for Paul real living. There's a second ingredient in real living according to the Apostle Paul, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Two things about Paul's prayer. First of all, there's consistency to it. He says night and day. Now, that doesn't mean he just prayed once at night and once in the day. There's a continual, fervent prayer life evidenced by the Apostle Paul. And that, for him, was part of real living. His prayer life was consistent, night and day. It was also specific. Second thing about it. Look at what he prayed for in verse 10. To see your face. Well, why did he pray that? Why did Paul pray about seeing the face of the Thessalonian Christians. Well, if you look back with me to chapter 2, verse 18, the apostle said, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered me. Paul had tried to get to see the Thessalonian Christians, but he says Satan hindered him. You suppose that uh, it could be that we really don't live joyful, prayerful lives is because we try to carry burdens that only God can carry. How many of you right now before God would say, I am bearing a burden, Lord, that I can't bear? We're trying to do His work. Only He can bear some of these burdens. You remember the words that we sing often? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let me just ask you a question this morning. Are you bearing a burden that was intended for your Heavenly Father to bear? Is that weighing you down? Are you disturbed by it to the point where 
you can't begin to see or to think of joy and of praying and leaving the burden with the Lord. There's a second specific in Paul's prayer. He prayed for the opportunity to complete what was lacking in their faith. In other places in the New Testament, this word complete is used of restoring a Christian who's fallen into some sin. Paul in Galatians in particular, restore such an one. It is used of mending broken fishing nets in the Gospels. It's used of setting a bone, completing. It's always used of completing something, of making something whole. What was it that the apostle wanted to complete or to make whole in the faith of the Thessalonian Christians? Notice the last part of verse 10, what is lacking to complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul didn't want to see his friends to talk about Rome. He didn't want to see his friends to talk about job situations. Paul wanted to see his friends to be with them and to complete what was lacking in their faith. God had done a great work in the Thessalonians, but they hadn't arrived There were things in their faith that needed to be completed. They needed to be taught some other things. And Paul wanted to go to see them and to complete that which was lacking in their faith. Joyful gratitude, earnest prayer, third, abounding love. Chapter 2, verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. And for all men, just as we also do for you. I believe there's a beautiful lesson in the way Paul expresses this. He assumes that love is present. And the apostle doesn't just want to have a maintenance program for their love. He wants their love to grow. He wants it to increase. He wants their love to come to a place where it overflows. Genuine love is one thing in the Christian life which a Christian cannot have to excess. And part of this love is to overlook the flaws in the ones that we love so that we can affirm them. Look with me for just a moment. Keep your place here at 1 Thessalonians. Turn back with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Let me lift one verse out, please. Verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Loving people, Christian love for people, is apart from their attractiveness or from their worthiness. Let me ask you a question. Did God wait 
until you were attractive to him before he loved you? May I say kindly, if that were the case, he'd still be waiting, wouldn't he? Are we to wait or are we to love only those we deem attractive or worthy? May I say to you, Christian love is an in spite of kind of love. It doesn't wait on worthiness. It doesn't wait on attractiveness. If it did, I urge you to go back and read the verse in Galatians about the Apostle Paul. I urge you to think of our Lord. He didn't wait. So often, um, Bible preaching churches sing just as I am, and I agree him. But I think there's a depth of meaning to that that we don't, that we take for granted sometimes. God loves us just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. Are you waiting to love somebody until they suit your standards? My friend, again, kindly may I say, that's not Christian love, if that's the case. Are you waiting for somebody to measure up to some level that you want before you say, then I can love them? And then, too, love is something, I believe, that we express, something we do, something that we demonstrate. That's what the love of God is all about. God the Father didn't just say, I loved you. He demonstrated His love in the giving of His Son. Love doesn't consist simply of words, but of deeds. Look at verse 12 again, please. And may the Lord cause you to increase and to abound in love one for another, not just to maintain, but to increase and to abound, and for all men, just as we also do for you. Again, there's no quality that will draw people who don't yet know the Lord to the Savior like love. One, at least to me, one of the greatest passages in all of worldly literature is a description of Christian people. It was given by a man by the name of Aristides to Emperor Hadrian. So that sets the time for us just a bit anyway. Days of Emperor Hadrian. And someone at his court described Christian people this way. Would you listen to this? This is not biblical. Worldly literature. Oh, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they freely give it to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home. And Hadrian, they are so happy. It must be their love. What a statement. This man, Aristides, and I don't know very much about him other than just a few things, but he looked at Christian people in his day, and he described, it, he described them to the emperor in those words. Every time I read them, I think, wow. 
Wow. That's abundant love. That's abounding love. That's part of what Paul said for him was real living. To do that. There's a fourth, and that is to be established in holiness. To be established in holiness. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You know, we are living in days of, um, at best, foggy and fuzzy standards. We are living in a world where it, it, it seems... Just do whatever you want to do. It's all right. Keep your place in First Thessalonians and turn with me, please, to First Peter. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Verse 13, follow along and let me read, please. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Key verses. 15, 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm glad that's in the Word of God. I'm glad that's in the Word of God. For that sets the standard. And there's no deviation from that. That's what God said. Don't go back to the former lusts. In your former lifestyle, be holy. Be holy. Do you know, do you remember, do you ever think of what the apostles and disciples did in the first century and how they did it? Not that there's anything wrong with great evangelistic programs. There's not. But they didn't have anything like that. They turned the world upside down. How? By the way they lived. And by the way they loved. And by the fact that they were confirmed in holiness. Do you suppose, dear people, there is any possibility whatsoever that a generation of blood-bought, redeemed, committed Christian people today could turn the world upside down like they did in the first century? Suppose that's even possible? I believe it is. And where are those blood-bought, redeemed, committed, confirmed in holiness and love? Where are those people? They're supposed to be in our churches. They ought to populate the church roles. God help us. Sometimes we let things slip by and we don't say a word about them in the world anymore. We are pushed back into a little corner and so we don't say anything about these things that uh, are, are grievously wrong in our society. Just okay. And it's not okay before God. 
And it is high time the saints sitting in pews in churches would wake up and speak God's truth to this generation. Read the New Testament. They turned the world upside down by the way they lived. You put them in prison. What did they do? Sing. They didn't change the message. And there are other examples. Established in holiness. You may have money. You may have youth. You may have a grand education. You may have all these things and more. But may I say to you, without Jesus, you're not really living. You don't have real life. And this morning, I point you to the only authentic source of eternal life, Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Trust Him. There is a heaven and there is a hell. None of us have a guarantee of living to lunch. Are you ready? Really? Are you ready? Without Him, there's no real life. Trust Him now. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for telling us the truth in your precious word. Thank you for the joy that accompanies life with God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of earnest prayer. May our love abound more and more. And may our hearts be established in holiness before you. I pray this morning that you would work in the lives of those who do not yet know you and bring them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. May the mind of Christ my Savior be in us. Number 390 in your hymnal. Number 390. I'm going to step down here. If you have questions about how to become a Christian, if you should want to publicly confess your faith in Christ, I'll meet you here. If God's speaking to your heart, simply do what He bids you to do. Isn't the Lord good to us? Isn't the Lord good to us? That's better. <laughs> Mark Acuff is our deacon of the day, and Mark comes to dismiss us with prayer. We want to thank Seth and uh, the adults who helped in so many ways, and 
We are grateful to the Lord for our young people who spent the week at Teen Valley Camp. I sent one of them a little note this week and said, I was out in the yard the other day and something came flying by my head. Was that you on a zip line? I'm sure they had a glorious week. I haven't spoken to any of them yet. I look forward to being able to do that. But we thank God for Teen Valley Ranch. Uh, A wonderful ministry. A wonderful ministry. Things take place in a context away from mom and daddy and away from home that never take place at home. Now, I don't know why that's true, but I know that it is. It was with me. I was called to preach at Cherrystone Youth Camp a lot of years ago. Things happen in a camp context that just don't happen elsewhere. Right? (laughs) Amen. So we thank God for Teen Valley and for all of our young people and for Seth. And for all the parents of these precious children. Come pray for us, will you? Would you bow your heads? And pray with me. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bearing our burdens that only you can bear. Help us, Father, to be willing to release them to you, to trust you, and to rest in that peace alone. We thank you for pastors who lead our youth. We thank you for pastors who lead our worship. And thank you for pastors who lead our congregation and preach your word without compromise. Thank you, Father, for the progress that we see in the building. It's our heart's desire, and we ask you that you would fill it to full and overflowing. Father, we ask you also to be with those on our prayer list. And with the many, many unspoken requests that are represented by each one of us here. If we're honest, Lord, we each one have an unspoken request. I ask you that you would give spiritual, emotional, and physical healing to each one in the measure that we need. We ask you today, Father, to be with our mission of the week, with Lighthouse Ministries. Thank you for Larry and Debbie Wilson, for the Christian biblical counseling that they give. The world is full of empty and errant counseling. We're so thankful for them, and we're grateful for the privilege to be a part of growing your kingdom through supporting them. Help us to go forth from here, Lord, as we've heard today, with a joyful heart. Let us make a difference in this world I ask that our joy would overflow, that the world would want to know what it is that makes us joyful and happy. And from that, we'd have an opportunity to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.